Welcome to the MCO Advisors Podcast. In this episode, Ryan and Corey are joined by Dr. Daniel Crosby, clinical psychologist and chief behavioral officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, where they discuss interpreting audience behavior and understanding how behavioral finance affects financial markets. So many great guests. We're going to have to edit that every uh, every quarter or every six months or so. That show's got to get edited. Um, uh, again, thanks, guys, for being here. Hey, William, how's it going? Justin, got a few, few of the regulars in here, I know, and I see uh, at least... 15 people in the background. Awesome. Yeah, so, Sid, I don't know um, if you jumped on early enough. I just wanted to say I appreciate your message. Um, I got your message, and uh, that means the world to us. Thank you. Thanks, Sid, whatever you said. I appreciate it. He just it. You know, was just saying I appreciate all the value you guys put out. Um, you know, I, I consistently look at it and use it as a resource. So just a nice awesome. message. That's what it's here for. It's here for you guys. So um, today, obviously, we were mentioning we have on uh, Daniel Crosby, and we're going to be talking about uh, behavioral finance. So without me blurting out too much information, I think it would make much more sense to bring on Daniel, talk about who he is, what he focuses on, and then, you know, easily get into the meat of the conversation from there. Um, so without further ado, Daniel Crosby. Right. Guys, good morning. I was I was still bobbing my head to your intro music. You caught me, <laughs> you caught me, caught me unaware. It's good to see yeah. you. Yeah, uh, we that was uh, actually from from one of our members, which was cool, who does a little bit of engineering in the background, a little audio engineering. So he gave us the beat for that. Very meta, but nice to add it to the show. So if you appreciate yeah, well that, we'll thank, uh, we'll thank Zach. Appreciate it, Zach. Um, thanks for being here, uh, Daniel. I, I know you've do probably done a thousand of these things. We'll give somebody some context. Obviously, we're getting into behavioral finance. But for now, why don't you introduce yourself, you know, where you work, and a little bit of what you do. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Uh, great to be here. Uh, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I'm the Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions. Uh, I am a clinical psychologist by education, but have spent my whole uh, career uh, in the world of financial services. And so really, my I have a three-part mandate at, at Orion. It's all about training tools and technology. So I'm, I'm a big part of the training arm of Orion, helping advisors you know, get the education they need to be behaviorally informed advisors. Um, and then we're building tools, uh, assessments, and different things for advisors to use with our clients. And then finally, baking behavior into the way uh, that we create fintech so that people are induced to make the best decisions possible. So that's me. Awesome. Uh, how long you've been? Uh, how long did you say you've been working in the finance, I guess, area? Uh, 12, 12 years. I'm to do a little math, but yeah, that's, twelve. That's 12 amazing. Years. From, from focusing on psychology, I guess what took you to to that area? Obviously, I feel like it, it fits like a puzzle piece. But what drove you there personally? Yeah, so I'm actually the son of a financial advisor. My dad, you know, what was and, and still is a, an active financial advisor. And so I got into psychology. Um, I, I got into psychology for a very specific reason. I wanted to help a friend, a dear friend who had an eating disorder, of, of all things. Um, I, in my efforts to help her, I got immersed in psychology, absolutely fell in love with it, uh, decided to pursue graduate education in it. But then about three years into my PhD program, I was just burned out. You know, I, um, 
you know, I had, I'd met with thousands of clients at this point, but I'm just, uh, I'm soft. Like I was, I was taking the work home with me. I was too, too empathetic, if you will, or, or had poor boundaries, I guess is another way to put it. Uh, and I was taking my work home with me. It was stressing me out. I didn't know if, if the clients that I saw on Friday would be there on Monday and it was just too much for me. And so I said, look, I, I want I, I want to work in the field. Like I love thinking deeply about why people do the things that they do, but I, I need to do it in a non-clinical setting. And so long story short, my dad, who's a, a, a great friend and career coach was like, look, there's a ton of psychology in, in my work. And I was like, what are you like? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, at the time, because I mean, at this time, I'm whatever, 25 years old, you know, halfway through my PhD program. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You're a numbers guy, you know, and he's like, no, no. And so then, you know, long story short, I I, uh, I went and did a postdoc here in Atlanta at, at Emory University, which is a great business school to try and get some exposure to the business side of psychology, uh, discovered behavioral economics in in that and then knew I was off to the races, you know, knew. I was going to be the person who was going to translate the findings of, of academia uh, into a packageable way where people like my dad and, you know, in, in flyover country, right? Like, so advisors, everyday advisors who are not reading, you know, the journal of behavioral finance, what can they do with these things uh, and how can they apply them to their practice? So that's sort of the, the expedited story. Hey, Daniel, real quick, like over the last 12 years, you've been, in this and deep into it. And I said, you know, as we just were coming on with Ryan, like this stuff never gets old for me. Um, How underserved is the market from your perspective in the coaching and learnings of psychology and behavioral finance? Like how much more do we have to go to really break through? Yeah. So there's, there's, uh, I think there's, there's three things that I think we need. I, I call it my three E's. Uh, if we as a profession are really going to change human behavior, uh, we need the right education, uh, we need the right environment, and we need the right encouragement. So education, we've made some strides. Like advisors, every advisor knows what behavioral finance is. I think many or maybe even most advisors have uh, at least a cursory understanding of some of the basic tenets of behavioral finance and are trying to distill those down to their clients. So we're making progress there. There's there's a ways to go yet. Uh, there's still people who haven't read my books, which is a travesty, you know, which is just a, <laughs> a crying a crying shame. Um, but I think you know the next two pieces were were very underserved, and it's like how do we take the insights of of behavioral finance and bake that into the environment, which is the portfolio, as it were, uh, and and how do we how do we provide the right kind of coaching or encouragement? Right, that real time, just in time encouragement where the advisor is the last line of defense uh, between a client and a catastrophic decision. You know, we need to train advisors to be persuasive and influential and empathetic and all these things. And I don't think we've done much as an industry. So I think the desire is there. Like that's that's the good news. Like just like you, the advisors that I talk to this is their favorite part of the business. Like this is the most interesting stuff. This is really where the research suggests that advisors add value uh, in a way that tech will never commoditize. Mm-hmm. And so we have a good we have a good start, but there's still work to do. 
Um, yeah, yeah I, I love it. And I would think like when I think about you saying that, when I think about you saying advisors want to learn about this, I think about all the terrible sales programs out there that are teaching power language and closing statements and focusing on how to ask for referrals at the end of meetings instead of taking all of that and, and packaging it into some course towards behavioral finance and empathy and teaching people how to think. Because once you can think for yourself, once you learn, I feel like, how to fish in terms of how people feel, if that's even a teachable thing, then, which you would have to let me know, um, but uh, it's just seeing how people feel, your business changes in, in all different facets because once you start focusing on the other person, everything you do day in and day out changes. And I think your business starts growing faster because you're always thinking about the other person. Real quick, Daniel, I just want to pause. Guys, get your, keep getting your questions in. Jeff, I see your question and there's, and we'll get the link for Daniel's book and stuff. Get the questions in and we'll ask How them. How many books, Daniel? I was on your site. I saw two or two, I thought, from you up front, but I'm sure there's I, there was a bunch of books on there. I didn't know if you were a part of all of them. There's a couple that I've written a, a handful. The two, the two best ones are The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor. Like okay, if, the ones at the top read, of your website. Yeah, like if you yeah. read those two, you'd be well served. Okay, I'll link those two or link you guys to uh, Daniel's website so you guys can go there and check out uh, all the books if you'd like. But those two, the first two you see will be... will be. Uh, yeah, right. Do you mind circling back on your point that you were making there? Yeah, so um, I don't even remember what I was saying. What was my point? It was brilliant. Think, <laughs> thank you. Thinking about, I was saying that in the way you said advisors, like, you know, they, they want to learn how people feel and, and what they're really thinking because then they know how to act. I find most advisors don't know what to do or possibly say, or maybe enter that. They don't enter that area and they keep it to the numbers because they don't want to fumble around and either offend somebody or be wrong or, and I, I don't know if that empathy side is, is more intuition, um, or, or how you would teach it. But I guess that was my point is I think that's the business changing factor that we're all missing is that that behavioral finance piece. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about some of these high pressure sales tactics that I think a lot of, um, you know, I, uh, I, I won't pick, a, <laughs> I was about to pick on specific folks, but uh, these right. high, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. we're going to not do that today. Uh, we're going to not get in trouble with compliance today, but you know, these high pressure sales tactics that, that folks learn, it's really like programmed inauthenticity. Like when you see someone coming at you with one of these sales pitches, like you can smell it from a hundred miles away. And people have such a sixth sense for, for BS and, and authenticity. And when people can tell that you care, like the world is yours. And, and what we're doing instead is, is giving advisors scripts, right? To, to, milk people out of their money when instead what we need to be doing is is giving teaching them about reflective listening teaching them about empathy teaching them about deep discovery and asking great questions and really understanding their clients uh, instead of giving them some sort of boiler room holdover sales tactics so I, you know I think that's where we're headed and the the tricky thing you know Corey's talked about why he loves behavioral finance and, and you Ryan talked about because it's ever changing. That's the thing. The best we can do with human behavior is really give kind of uh, an, an intellectual scaffolding, right? You can know high level truths about people and you can have sort of a mental lattice work that you're operating from. But every client that walks through your door is going to be different than the one that was in your office the previous hour. And you, you need things that are sort of intangible, like 
curiosity and, and empathy and kindness. And, uh, you know, nobody's, nobody's learning that in their, in their, in their sales training. When you say learning, like, I, I want to dig in, like, what's your perspective on the appetite for advisors to want to learn that versus, because Ryan and I see it, you know, we talk to a lot of advisors as do you, Daniel, but like, there's also human behavior of like, that's, that's hard to do, to learn some of that stuff and apply some of that human behavior on an unscalable basis to your business versus taking the script or taking the stuff off the shelf and using that, which allows you to scale or scale your message, but it, it neutralizes and sterilizes the message as well. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. So I think there, I think the appetite is there. And I think candidly, the appetite would be even greater if people understood how impactful it was. Like if people understood that this is the nucleus of every single thing you're doing and didn't view it as some sort of peripheral soft skill, that's like a nice to have, like, no, this is this. It, it may not scale in, in the way that technology scales or a script scales, but it, but it can produce businesses of scale and businesses that are self-perpetuating because if you get on the right track with this stuff, it's, it's so addictive. And, you know, the other thing is it can change your life. You know, this is one of my biggest gripes about behavioral finance is a lot of times we, we take this on as like, well, here I come, the, you know, the, the white knight. And I'm going to learn these things about my screwed up, flawed clients, and then I'm going to save them from them themselves, right? Well, that's that's part of it. But like, you know, he, heal yourself. Like the the things that you learn when you're studying psychology and you're studying behavioral finance, we're all a little broken, and and they can help us too be better, you know, be better partners and parents and business owners and everything. So I think when you approach behavioral finance from the perspective that it can help you a whole lot as well as helping your clients and help your business. I think the appetite's absolutely there. I would yeah. even argue that this needs to start coming into maybe, maybe if not the seven, something about the CFP a little bit more or something. I don't know how you would, I guess, ingrain more uh, behavior in it, but the training or the level that you need to study, I guess, to get there. I just feel like everybody's got their face in a book for so long that by the time you get to people, you kind of understand a little bit of the rules, but you don't understand people. And then you need to develop that experience. So you're starting so far behind with a bunch of knowledge, but you can't apply it to somebody because you don't know how they feel. The, the CFP just announced that it's that they just upped the um, the requirement for, for a behavioral finance psychology piece in the CFP. It's now 7% of the designation. I mean, That's I think awful. it should be I think it should be like 50% of the yeah. designation, but I mean, I think you I know, saw that on your post actually, when I was scrolling through, you just mentioned yeah. that recently over the last two yeah. weeks or so, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. What, hey, Corey, why don't you ahead, get into Ryan. some of your granular questions before I have a few of mine where I would steer this, but maybe we'll overlap. So why don't you get into yours first? There's just one that like I mentioned to you backstage, Daniel, that you had this conversation with Trey Williams recently and it was fascinating. Um, because it, it speaks to what Ryan and I are doing entrepreneurship and it speaks to the business and FAs, FAs are all entrepreneurs, right? So I really took a lot from that conversation. But one thing that stood out was the word unlearn. And you guys talked in depth about unlearning behavior to unlock future growth and future more positive behaviors. And I wonder, like, as the human attention graph shifts, as the, the, 
things that we're more interested in as humans, especially COVID has fast forwarded this thing like exponentially, which I'm sure you have some thoughts on, but we want to consume things in a different manner. We want to do things in a different manner. We want to make connections differently. How do advisors unlearn some of the behaviors they have been taught, we've all been taught over the last 15 or 20 years out of the jump? Like how, what, what are some steps that we can take? Because let me put something even more granular on it. Well, when seminars return, my business will be back to where it was in 2019. Maybe, we don't know, like, but so how do we unlearn some of that stuff? Yeah, so, you know, the way that I think about it, which I mean, this, you know, I said on the podcast, I want to write a book about this one day because yes. I'm so fascinated by it. And I, I haven't written the book yet. So I don't, I don't claim it's to be, be an expert. unlearning. I made a note of it. <laughs> right. I don't claim to be an expert yet. But I think about it the same way that, you know, the, in sort of the same way of this Cartesian principle of I think, therefore I am, right? He took, he took everything he thought he knew and he deconstructed it until he could find the, you know, the one thing that he knew to be, you know, indubitably true. And I think that's what we have to do with, with our experience and some of the business lessons we've learned. Um, Wall Street and the finance business is like terrible for these kind of like folksy aphorisms and this little like down home humor and, and things, these little, these little mantras that we have that I'm not even sure if they work. And so I think what we have to do is start to question everything and, and ask ourselves, how is that working for me? You know, how is that working for me, both from a business perspective and for me as a, as a human being who's trying to grow and be better day after day? So I think we have to question everything. And if you find yourself starting to get defensive about questioning something, or you find yourself being reluctant to question something, that's probably a good indicator that you've that you've poked a sore spot and that it needs double the, the, the amount of questioning. So I really think it takes like, you know, making a list of everything you do in a given day and, and breaking it down and deconstructing it and say, how is it working for me? You know, another very simple thing that I do is I try and, um, you know, I, I, I do this sort of compare and contrast thing. If you ask me, like, what are what are my values? Right. I would say, you know, things like, uh, you know, being being a great husband and father, like, you know, right, like being being someone who's always learning, you know, all these things and work candidly would kind of be down the list you know, like being, being, you know, my job would be kind of lower on the list than some of the personal stuff. But if you look at how I spend my time, like there's a massive imbalance. Like I don't spend a whole lot of, I, I spend a lot more time working than I do being a great husband and father. And so I think we have to like not buy our own nonsense. Sometimes we have to look for discrepancies in our own lives and, and not buy into this bill of goods that we're selling ourselves all the time. We all have this drive to be, to, to think of ourselves as, as above average, uh, you know, with respect to our talent and our intellect and all these things, and also above average with respect to our morality or goodness. And neither of those things is necessarily true. And until we need to, until we sort of do the self-examination to determine how we can get better in both respects, nothing happens. So I think you have to sort of boldly break apart your life, question your own nonsense, and look for the discrepancies between who you say you are and who you who your time says you are.
Oh man, I love that, especially at the end. I feel like that was real, like cherry on the Sunday comment. Uh, and then again, makes me makes me think. I think one of the things we do, especially when we're planning or meeting with advisors, is starting to say, like, oh, I, I don't have how much time do you have to market? What are you going to allocate? And what are you spending your time on now? Uh, and it took us a while to realize, I think, to get to that point. But we had to say, like, wh- how are your, where are your goals, and what are you doing every day that we think is going to get you there? And do you need like a, com- a complete switch of activity of what you should be doing? Uh, I find a lot of people are doing that, and that's that's a hard thing to do. Um, I, I like your idea of the exercise too. Everybody taking out uh, whatever pen, pa- paper, and just writing down everything you do all day, what you focus on for blocks of time. Um, uh, how often do you do that for yourself uh, as an audit, uh, if, if yearly or, or how often at all? Oh, me personally? No, I'm full of, I'm full of crap. I do it rarely. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, don't listen to me. I've done, I've done it a couple of times. Not a lot though. Do as I say, not as I do. No, for sure. That's a, that's a whole, that's a shrinks. That's a shrinks. Don't, don't watch operation. me. Just read my books. Daniel Crosby, put a stamp on it. (laughs) That's my whole. That's my whole gig. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Let me throw in one question that I really like. It's a little bit specific, and uh, it's from. Sounds like you know pretty well, uh, Jeffrey Johnson. So I'll read his specific question. Um, In the behavioral investor, you speak of risk tolerance and risk perception. Can you explain the difference? And also, if you can touch on investor questionnaires. Yeah, Jeffrey, Jeffrey did not know he was doing this, but he's teeing me up for something that we're building at Orion that'll be launched soon. So really, um, there's this huge disconnect in the in the world of 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 RTQs, right? Risk tolerance questionnaires and the way that advisors use them. And there's a disconnect between uh, how advisors think about risk and how academia thinks about risk. So if you if you ask the average advisor, you know, does uh, does your client's risk tolerance change? Like, did did your client's risk tolerance change in March of 2020? Every advisor will say to you, yes, definitely. You know, and if you ask a, uh, an academic, you know, did their risk tolerance change? They would go, no, it did not. Because the thing that academia does is it breaks up risk into three categories. So you've got risk capacity, which is someone's ability to take risk based on their sort of level of financial acumen, based on um, how much money they have and and how young or old they are. So like all else being equal, if you have more time, more money, more know-how, you have greater capacity, right? You have risk tolerance, which in the literature is your long-term attitudes towards risk reward trade-offs, right? So this is your sort of long-term unchanging in a cold emotional state your ability to make risk reward trade-offs or your, or your desire to make risk reward trade-offs. And then you have risk perception or risk composure, which is this third piece. And that's the psychology piece. That's your tendency to become short-term in the face of market volatility. And so there's this miscommunication between the advisory profession and the people who study risk kind of for a living And so what we need is an assessment that takes all three of these things into account, right? That takes into account, you know, what is someone's long-term attitudes? What is their ability to take risk? But also candidly, what is their anxiety level and how easily are they bucked off the ride? 
Because, you know, if you ask one of these clients who's freaking out in, in March of 2020, you go, hey, sh you know, should you should you be doing this? Like, is this the right thing to do? I think almost to a person, they would go, no, you know, that's the risk tolerance. No, I, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but do it. Like, you know what I mean? And that's that's the risk composure. So until we start measuring risk composure uh, as part of our uh, questioning process, we're not able to provide behavioral coaching in the manner we should. We're not aware of which of our clients, um, you know, are most in need of a helping hand when markets get choppy. Uh, but luckily, that's something we're going to start doing. And I'm super excited about it. That's awesome. I loved seeing your your share this morning about the flows uh, over mm. the last twelve months. I mean, and you said your I think your comment was never fails. <laughs> never. Can you yeah, give I, us two examples of questions that you would use that add to unlocking somebody's composure? Oh gosh, I'll have to pull it. So um, they would be they would be things like I'm easily stressed out or I tend to expect the worst. I'm kind of spitballing here, but they would be yeah, yeah, yeah. they would be directionally things like that. And it's not about money, right? It's not, it's, it's not questions about money. It's, it's questions about, you know, people's predispositions towards being anxious. That's, that's, uh, besides, besides reading your, your books, where do you think somebody starts to educate themselves on that third important piece of composure? Oh, let's see. Um, who's who's written about this? Oh, easy. Michael Kitsis. Michael Kitsis has written great stuff about this. He has um, a, a great piece on it that's called the Sorry State of Risk Tolerance Questionnaires or something like that. Yeah, Michael Kitsis has written two or three um, great, great articles on this. Um, we got a random one um, coming in from Eric. Eric, uh, we know that um, yeah, your daughter is joining your business. So I don't know. Um, what are your thoughts uh, here, Daniel, on what would you suggest for an advisor who's starting in the business with no experience? And we know that there's other advisors that you're bringing on some of your um, adult age children now to, to help you guys. Yeah, Eric, great question. So, I mean, again, I have a I have a hammer, so I see nails everywhere. But I would, <laughs> I would, I would suggest that she get um, you know training in, in persuasion. So I see persuasion and influence as sort of the advisor's meta skill. Right. Because think about what an advisor does <clears throat> in, in her day. Right. An advisor is going to want to develop new business and developing new business is all about uh, persuading someone to part with their hard earned dough in exchange for your goods and services. Uh, an advisor is going to want to manage her staff. Right. What is that? What is leadership? But persuading people to pull in service of a common goal. You know, your daughter is going to eventually going to be holding clients' hands while they face moments like we faced, you know, this time last year. And like, what is good behavioral coaching, but persuading people to set aside that short-term fear uh, in, in service of long-term benefit. So if, if I just had one skill to teach a new advisor, it would be uh, influence. And a gentleman by the name of Robert Cialdini has written a book called Influence the Psychology of Persuasion, which is killer. It's a like top 10 business book ever. And uh, I would I would give it to her for a gift. I love that I she have... went there. <laughs> I, I, was, I was expecting <laughs> to go somewhere else. Go ahead, jump in, Corey. No, I, um, so a lot of, I, I wanna continue to add value to the, to the conversation and I know advisors 
who face this, right? A lot of advisors, or there are many advisors out there that, that hit this plateau. You know, they've started, they've built a business, they've maybe inherited a business, and it's been able to sustain the lifestyle they want. Um, but the growth has slowed and they're reaching a point, you know, 40, 45, 50 years old. They've dreamt of this business being greater than it is. And it's just been stagnant and it's they've been unable to unlock the next level. And I think one of the things that you've talked about in the past is, is and again, I'm hearkening back to this conversation you have with Trey, but it's it's this belief that you start to lose belief that the business can be to where you want it to be. And do you have any coaching around that and how advisors can not look at it as if they've failed, but look at it as if we just need to regain that belief, reignite that fire. And what do I need to start doing to put the pieces in place one foot in front of the other to now step above the plateau and take that next step? Yeah. So again, I, I may be projecting here, you know, growing up, Growing up the son of an advisor, I may be projecting. So, you know, your mileage may vary. This is what I've observed with my dad, right? When my dad um, got his job that he still has on, on the day I was born, right? So my early years were all about him hustling and grinding and trying to eke out an existence because, I mean, the truth about financial advisors is, um, you know, it's very hard at first and the attrition rates are incredible. Like, I mean, what is the failure rates like 80% or something? So early on, your why is just hunger, survival, not wanting to be a statistic. And then at some point, even a middling financial advisor gets paid many times what the rest of the, of the world gets paid, right? I mean, even a sort of a, a 50th percentile level uh, AUM advisor is making a really fantastic living. So it can be easy to forget that why. And the why is not survival anymore, right? The why is not, you know, keeping, um, you know, shoes on your kid's feet or whatever. So I think you have to pivot and find a new why. Because I think, you know, we'll, we'll, go, back to, we'll go back to Nietzsche, right? He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. Like all the tough parts of business can be overcome if the thing you're working for is, is something that you're intensely desirous of. And I think at some point for a lot of advisors, money fails to motivate. So you have to, you know, you've got money, you're making good money and making another 100,000, 200,000, whatever it is, it doesn't really get you out of bed in the morning. So I would say that the key to breaking that stagnation is really having a why that matters on a deep personal level, something that you're not afraid to get out of bed again with that same tenacity that you started your business with when it was probably all about survival. Uh, and so it may be leaving a legacy. It may be leaving an intellectual legacy and helping educate the next generation of investors. Like it, it may be setting your daughter up to take over, whatever it is though, I think until you've got that North Star, like nothing else matters. And and most, I, I think many advisors are so well taken care of financially that it just doesn't, money ceases to be the thing. So I think you got to look for something more engaging than just making a couple more bucks. 
Yeah. And I notice when people are usually starting, I feel like it is for the money or at least, you know, the lifestyle, I guess it depends what kind of practice you want. Cause I realize mm -hmm. there's many different advisors of, you know, do you want to, do you want to have a decent practice and have a full life or do you want that one B, you know, every, do you want mm -hmm. to go to the 1 billion goal type deal? Uh, and I notice it seems to be one or the other, but one of the things like I reflect on and take from you speaking is asking yourself what you do throughout the day. And, and, and do we need those necessary goals? Uh, I, I wonder, I wonder why people get into the business for money in the first place. What would you say about creating long-term versus short-term goals to kind of keep your mind right during those difficult times? Well, I think, I think you need both, right? You need kind of like this big audacious goal out there. That's kind of the rocket fuel. That's the goal that you're almost like never going to meet, you know, like I want to leave a great legacy. There's never like a tick box where you're like, boom, did it, you know, right? Like I want to be growing right. every day. So I think you need like sort of a more, um, a more philosophical, more ethical, more personal goal. That's sort of the large goal. That's the rocket fuel for your, for your endeavor. And then I think you need to be very meticulous about shorter term goals that are very measurable right? You need to take that sort of overarching goal that's going to be a little more meta and then break it down into the constituent parts of every day. Like, okay, so if this is the big goal, what does that look like Monday through Friday? And here's just like, you know, the stuff I'm going to cross off my list, the numbers I need to hit. So I think you need both. You need the rocket fuel and you need the stuff to just kind of get you through the, the short term. Oh, go ahead, Corey. No, I, I mean, I, I'm just thinking tactically, any overarching themes that are common that you that you see, Daniel, that, that you would leave, you know, our audience with that after they jump off of this, this stream that they could start thinking about today. I know it's Friday, but they can, you know, mull it over over the weekend and start putting it into place and, yeah. and just make it a constant. And how would you implement your composure into the financial planning process? Like the things mm. that you're saying and the questions you have? Yeah. So Corey, are you asking about what kind of goal? Are there any commonalities between these kind of rocket fuel goals? Is that what you're talking about? No, like this was a great conversation. I appreciate the 35 minutes. It's it's very high level. Is there anything tactical that you see that's common that you could just say, guys, if I could leave you with three things, if I could leave you with one thing, start thinking about this every day, like make this a constant. Oh yeah. Okay. So tactically, what what can folks do? So I think one of the things that that we can do, uh, honestly, is to do a much better job of of recentering our clients on their on their meaning. You know, we just talked about advisor meaning. One of the things that we found in our research is at the Center for Outcomes, which is sort of the advisor education arm of of, of Orion. One of the things we found is that conversations that begin and end with purpose, with meaning, are 50% more likely to get followed through on. So I think tactically, just beginning and ending every conversation with, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, this is why we're here. I'm going to recenter you on your goals. And at the end of that conversation, you know, yes, thank you for being here. Thank you for doing X, Y, Z. This is all in service of your dream, which is ABC. So we need to... Uh, we there's something in psychology called primacy and recency effect, where we have better memory for the first part of an interaction and the last part of an interaction. And so we need to bookend every conversation we have with our clients with with meaning. I think that's something very practical that advisors can start to do that will see behavioral compliance tick up a great deal. 
Uh, in terms of measuring composure, uh, you should work with Orion and get my uh, RTQ. That's the answer. No, I mean, I hope, I hope, uh, I hope other folks will will start to do this too, though, to measure to measure psychology, right? How how likely is that short term psychology going to you know bump you from that long term focus? It it needs to be a part of every risk tolerance questionnaire. One of the things that I think we have trouble with is explaining why something is so important until there is a result to a result to it. For example, we talk about marketing and there's like obviously we can track things in the middle, but it's like until you have the new relationships and new households, it feels like and, and grow, what is a brand? There are all these words that we use, but what does it lead to? And with you and and focusing on, I feel like that's what you're focusing on, the things that are very difficult to quantify. The things you can't feel or grab, but you know are the basis of every conversation. How do you get people to make that jump to start focusing on those areas that aren't as trackable or as tangible? Yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great question. And everyone's always looking for the for the magic pill, right? So I'm a psychologist, so I can't I can't prescribe medicine. Sorry, guys. But you know, one of the things that <laughs> it's gotta be one of your lines. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, one of the things that people would always come to me and say is like, you know, well, what what can you give me? You know, what can you give me for this? And I'm like, uh, you know, hard conversations and, and dedication. Like, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing I can give you for this. And I have a specific memory of my, uh, of a client coming to me with, with bad anxiety. And I said, okay, like, let's get a little bit of a personal health history. Let's talk about, you know, how you spend your days. And he's like, you know, usually have a donut and a couple of, you know, uh, a donut and a liter of Mountain Dew for breakfast. I'm not kidding. You know, I'm from, I'm from <laughs> I'm from I'm from Alabama. So, you know, these sorts of things are to be expected. But, you know, that, you know, and I'm like, look, hey, like, hey, man, like drinking that much caffeine and sugar is going to like make make anyone anxious. So, you know, can we can we talk about that? Like, no, like I want medicine or like what are the magic words that you're going to say to me to not make me anxious? And I'm like, you know, at, at some point you got to stop drinking so much Mountain Dew. <laughs> and I think that's what we, we run into with, with advisors too, right? Is we want the, we want the silver bullet. And I think there's, there's two parts to how you begin this behavioral journey. The first one is sort of a leap of faith, right? Like you, you, you have to believe in it enough to try it. And then you have to feel something. And I know that's kind of mushy, but when you have an interaction with a client that is so deep and so next level and so connected, it feels qualitatively different. And I think once you've had a taste of that, there's no going back to the color by number sales book that you learned, you know, when you were 22, um, uh, you know, getting cutting your teeth in the business. So I think you gotta you gotta listen to podcasts like this, you know. Uh, know enough about the research to say, yeah, that makes sense and take that leap of faith. And I think once you feel that difference, you'll be converted. That's what I'm, that's what I'm banking. I on. love that. There's a million clips in the last five minutes that we can use for content here, by the way. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, to quantify that feeling is difficult, but to say it doesn't exist would be a lie. Uh, so yeah. I, I, I love that the, the fight for it. And I, and I cannot agree with you more in terms of, I feel like at some point there is that at least a little bit leap of faith. You have to believe in the thing you can't see enough mm -hmm. to run towards it, at least to something, or you're just pushing a rock uphill. Yeah. Yeah. 
Let's uh, uh, get to Nick's question here. It's yeah, a this one. is a good question from Nick. Any life expectancy data on financial advisors? I have known too many people who died before 60 in the industry. Wow, Nick, great question. So uh, there's there's parts of this question that I know and there's parts that I don't know. So one of the things that um, I, I don't know the life expectancy for financial advisors. I know when I was in grad school that financial professionals were second uh, in their level of suicidality only to dentists. So dentists were the only people who were more prone to suicide than, than financial professionals. Uh, I also know that in 2008, 2009, uh, Brad Klontz and, and a couple of his colleagues who I'm, I'm spacing their names, sorry, colleagues, but they, um, they did a survey of, of financial professionals and they looked at the incidence of, of PTSD, uh, anxiety and depression among financial professionals, 93%. 93% of financial professionals showed clinical levels of anxiety, depression, or PTSD coming out of the great financial crisis. So, you know, I talked early in this, in this conversation about how I left the world of psychotherapy because I was taking my work home with me. Well, financial advisors are in a very real sense therapists, right? I mean, they experience secondary PTSD-like stuff because they are this, they are this barrier between a a client and a bad decision and in a very real sense, their job is to absorb the angst and frustration and fear of a hundred clients. You know, every time we have a March of 2020 and it's out of their hands, you know, that's, that's the thing that makes it so tricky. One of the things that's most damaging for your mental health is, is uncertainty and lack of control. And so here's an advisor who's doing everything right right? Like planning, you know, helping clients, educating clients, and then COVID comes along and wham, like you did nothing wrong. Suddenly your business is down a third. Every one of your clients is upset and it's no fault of your own. And so I, I, I don't know the life expectancy data on financial advisors, but I do know that there's data to suggest that many financial advisors should be seeking uh, professional help that I think that they should be working with a therapist um, to, to sort of help offload some of this, because if you're doing it right, it's candidly can, can be quite heavy. Like it can be quite stressful. I think if you, if you're doing it right. So yeah. What a so great I think, conversation. That's like, cause you're so right. Like everything's fine. Uh, February of last year. And then you just happen to have one or two clients that are literally about to turn the spigot on in retirement. And then this mm -hmm. whole thing happens and just horrible timing. And you're, you're shouldering all that weight. Yep. Yep. You've been six months in cash and maybe you could have used 12. Like, again, you really think you're doing the right things, but you, you uh, could you have prepared for that situation? Um, well, what's something, and maybe this is, maybe this is dropping too much on you. I love this in terms of what uh, Jeff just mentioned, meditation and stoicism has helped me. What would you add in besides, or I guess therapy was your answer, uh, anything outside of, of that, that, that advisors should be doing to keep control of this and to keep it in the back of their mind and make sure I'd imagine, and you, you'd have to tell me with your expertise that a person, let's call it deteriorating mentally or like starting to lose angst probably happens over time. It builds on like mud and probably feels heavier and heavier. What do you think an advisor can do to grab a hold of that situation and know that they're going down that path? Yeah. So first of all, I think you need to um, you need to recognize the warning signs. 
right? So a lot of time, the warning signs are not what you think they are, especially among men, right? Who let's face it, make up the, the bulk of our profession, right? I think men have been so socialized to, to run from their feelings and things that, that a lot of times it's going to look like, you know, uh, loss of appetite, you know, weight gain, weight loss, uh, gain or loss of appetite, you know, uh, sleeping too much, sleeping too little lethargy, like, you know, um, anhedonia, which is like losing sort of losing uh, interest in things that you used to find pleasurable. So all of these things, I think, are early warning signs. I think therapy is like a great, you know, sort of one stop shop. The thing that I would tell you, much like working with a financial advisor, working with a therapist has everything to do with goodness of fit. So see if you will get a therapist who will let you have a five minute conversation with them, like a five minute Zoom call to just say, hey, do we hit it off? Because the best predictor of therapeutic outcomes is, is rapport, right? The best predictor is not how many years of school they went to. It's not, you know, how many degrees they have on their wall. It's do you like them? Like, right, mm -hmm. do you know, do you connect? So see if that rapport is there. The final thing I would say, I would preach this model till I was blue in the face, sometimes 20 times a week last year, because I think it's so important. Um, Martin Seligman from, from uh, Corey's neighborhood, from the University of Pennsylvania, has uh, this model called PERMA. And it's kind, of the five, it's kind of the five facets of wellness. So the P in PERMA is for positive experiences. This is fun, right? Like this is eat an ice cream cone, go for a walk, go to Disney World, like what, you know, whatever that looks like for you, right? So are you getting enough fun in your life? The E is for engagement. You know, engagement is deep work that causes you to lose track of time. That might be your job. It might be guitar, right? It might be a hobby. It might be something else. But are you doing things that are engaging? Uh, the R is for relationships. You know, how are your relationships doing? That's the number one predictor of how your mental health is going to be. The M is for meaning. This is prayer, meditation, spirituality, religion, charitable, giving, philanthropy. It's its getting outside of yourself and working for something bigger. Uh, and then the A is for advancement, like tracking your progress, seeing that you're getting better uh, that today than you were yesterday. So check out that PERMA model. Look for those early warning signs. Don't be scared to go uh, ask for five minutes of a therapist's time to, to see if they're a good fit. Uh, Daniel, I want to be respectful of your time and and there's a ton of questions that I also want to pull up here real quick if we can, but I love where this conversation has gone over the last 15 minutes, because the point you made is the industry, it's not just male or female. The industry as a whole does not, in my experience, over 15 years of being here, 16 years, does not really like talking about this stuff. It's not very comfortable for the majority of people in finance, in the Wall Street world, to talk about their feelings and, and all these things. So and I love what tell you when you're onboarding, hey, by the way. <laughs> yeah. 93% of people hate their lives. Let's go ahead and get started, you know. For sure. So I just, I love that. Yeah, thank you.
here's some of the questions I just want let's, to yeah, let's jump into questions because obviously Daniel we could bring you on for um, five six podcasts to dig into each one of these could be individual episodes just with how yeah, you could come work for M -Code you have yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. Go. let's go all right let's do um, this yeah we, we have a 10 30 we have six minutes are you are you can can you handle a speed round of questions let's go I mean this one will be easy because I know nothing about it so no James I have I have not I've not looked into it I mean I can I can see why it would feel like rejection. I can see why there would be an emotional toll. It's not, I'm, I'm afraid it's nothing I've studied very closely. So I'm sorry about that. Cool. Um, what else do you have? Did you have another question? I'm or just looking at a bunch of these oh. comments coming in. Isn't everything about rapport? That's kind of a rhetorical comment, I suppose. Mm -hmm. what's, um, what's something, I guess, like I said, when you're implementing, I love what you said about the planning process. I think the value you added there was uh, something impactful in the beginning and the end. When you're explaining finance to people and how the market works, what would you say the type of language an advisor should use to prepare for somebody of these COVID situations? Obviously, we can say we don't know what's happening, but how do you set up expectations during the planning process so that th maybe these these marches don't feel so painful. Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of things to do. Like one of the things we need to do is is set expectations, right? So set expectations. So uh, there was a recent survey that uh, pulled investors and said, "What do you think the returns in the U.S. market are going to look like for the next ten years?" And the average response was fifteen percent annualized for the next ten years. Okay. <laughs> Like heaven help us if that's true. Like I mean, like look, no, no, look, I'm nobody knows anything. Maybe it will be. I I seriously doubt it. Like given you know, given the levels that we're at uh, right now, and so I think that I think that one of the things we need to do is educate our clients about what to expect. Like you can expect ten years, uh, ten percent a year on average, but it's extremely lumpy, right? Like no year is going to be ten percent, or very seldom will it be ten percent. It's going to be negative twenty-five plus fifty, you know, plus three, minus seven. It's going to be all over the place. So I think you have to educate them. You have to educate them to expect a a correction every single year, like. Every single year, the average drawdown for the past 35 years is 14% intra-year drawdown. So just say, look, every year that I have your money, you're going to be upset. Like there's going to be a time, where you, you know, you, you think the sky is falling. There's going to be a narrative that makes total sense to you and you're going to be freaked out. And then every five or six years, we're going to get a true, a, a, a true kick in the stomach. Right. So I think you have to set expectations. But then even once we've set expectations, we have to understand that that, uh, you know, telling someone about a 10 percent drop or a 25 percent drop and, and seeing a 25 percent drop where that client just hit a million bucks in February of 2020. And now it's 750. And they're like, ah, like I didn't make, you know, my first job paid me 50 grand and I just lost you know, five years income in, in one, you know, in one fell swoop. So we have to educate them about sort of rationally what to expect. But then we have to also educate them that no amount of education will solve that wound and that that's what we're here for, right? There's going to be times when, 
no matter how many seminars you come to and I preach these things to you, it's not going to matter. You're going to freak out. And that's what I'm here for, to keep you from making the bad decision. And the last thing that I will say is we need to do... Um, we need to do a better job of, of taking victory laps, right? If you had a client who wanted to, your client with a million bucks, right? Your client with a million bucks calls you uh, in, in March of 2020, they want to get out of the market because now their million bucks is 700,000 and you keep them in. And now their million bucks is whatever it is, you know, one and a quarter or whatever. The Delta the Delta, that, that half a million dollar Delta, they will never repay you. They will never repay you on the back of that one piece of advice. And I think we need to get better about saying, hey, remember the last time this happened? Remember in 08, 09, when you wanted to sell out in March of 09 and I wouldn't let you and I made you X? Like, you're not going to do it here either. And, and we're going to wait and see where it shakes out. We need to do a better job of quantifying dollars and cents, the value of our advice, uh, because behavioral coaching is invaluable. And I don't think we we take enough victory laps. That's huge. I love that. Yeah. Um, so many, so many awesome clips we'll have to pull out of this and and somehow get it to you, Daniel, for either yeah, you get for us to share something. Mason's in uh, quick for la la last last question I'll, I'll hit you with. And uh, Jeffrey said rebook him. Uh, completely agree. I think I think I'd, I'd love to have you back on the show sometime in the future just to keep digging sure. in. But how do you balance the need for equity exposure with a young client who has a low risk composure, according to your questionnaire? So it's a it's a great question. So the answer is that risk composure uh, doesn't factor into the asset allocation almost at all. So it's really just a tool for the advisor. Uh, the The asset allocation is going to be driven ninety percent by their tolerance uh, and their capacity for risk. The low risk composure, Mason, is just a, sh a shout out to you as the advisor to say, hey, you know, uh, look out for Corey because he's a, a train wreck. No, but like, you know, look out, you know, look out for this client. It's going to it's going to help you know better how to coach them, know that they're the kind of client who needs this help, uh, because it's if we gave you know low equity exposure to every nervous Nelly in the stock market, no one no one would ever reach their goals. So tolerance tolerance and capacity drive the asset allocation. You, the advisor, drive the management of the behavior uh, relative to the risk composure. Man, some of his comments are really funny. <laughs> it, I, we I feel like I feel like you tow that line, and I love where this conversation <laughs> goes because you're obviously you're so empathetic. You're thinking about people's minds, but you're also like crossing that line between no this is how you have to be persuasive this is how you sell to people with the empathy this is how we make sure we're taking people along understanding the ride but getting them their results so i love that you're like you put the ball in their court and in your own with the responsibility of where people should go and how people should feel yeah nick thank you thank you for the books i get i get three bucks every time someone buys a book so i'm about to i'm about to hit that Five dollar foot long for lunch. Maybe on. maybe a third guitar in the back after seven. Toss years a Mountain Dew in there. <laughs> Look, I got a third guitar. I got a third guitar that my best guitar is over here, kind of on the floor, I, yeah. because I've been playing it. But yeah, um, there, there's more. There's more guitars to come though. If Nick, if Nick will keep buying books. Guys, if you enjoyed this, which I know you did, uh, I tagged Daniel already in the episode. Go check out his content. At least two TEDx talks, I believe that I saw. Um, 
Three, only, three. only two, only two good ones. Oh, okay. So just like his books, only three. two good talks, two good books. <laughs> I so tap out it too. If you, if you consume all of his content, guaranteed to enjoy four things. Yeah, um, right. So again, follow Daniel. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how, how, what's your preferred place of contact if people want to reach out to you? Yeah, three three places. Go check out my podcast called Standard Deviations. Corey talked about my latest episode, which I thought was very good. If I if I did say so, um, uh, LinkedIn Daniel Crosby PhD, uh, Twitter for dad jokes at Daniel Crosby. Awesome, uh, and a uh, great uh, lo- love the podcast that that you're doing. And as I mentioned in in the post here, you had on Stacy Havener recently. Mm-hmm talking about storytelling, which was how I found you. Sure. So love your podcast. I- I'm addicted to it now. I suggest everybody else jump in there. It's, it's again, we're talking about how do you get your mind right for marketing? We try to put out this show attached to like this podcast to try to educate people. I think that's exactly what you're doing in yeah. a, in a world where we need and desire more education. So I can't thank you enough for being here. And while I have to jump off the show quickly, um, I appreciate you so much and would love to have you back on. Not happy to do it. Thanks guys. Thanks, Daniel. See you, Daniel. Have an awesome day. What a show. What a show. As I as I always I felt it would be and, and get excited of these guests where I'm like, I, I have a, an inkling to bring them on, but then when they come on, just knock it out of the park. And well, sometimes they have it's so, so much. They just, there's so much content. To I know these guys are always educated and know what they're talking about, but I never know how awesome it's going to be and how they present it. Great storyteller, same as Stacy, uh, another great, another great guest. Appreciate you guys for being here. We can't leave paid members hanging because that wouldn't make sense to do the free show while they're paying us. So we have to go. But thank you guys for being here. Rewatch this episode 10 times if you want to up your financial planning game, really. Um, Daniel's a Join great guy. MCOAdvisors.com Join us. Buy his books. Coaching. Buy our stuff. Everybody go spend money somewhere. And uh, have a good Friday and a good weekend. Cheers. Thank you for listening. We hope that you find value in this show. We hope that you find value in MCO Advisors. You finding success means everything to us. If you found value in this show, please leave us a rating. Thank you all. Talk soon.